Are you called? Are you called by God? Do you have a calling? Many years ago, I was asked a question like this that reset the whole course of my life. I was working as a brake design engineer in the automotive industry in Detroit, near Detroit, Michigan. Cheryl, my wife, and I were just newly married, and we were youth leaders in a vibrant and active church nearby. One night after a youth event, my wife noticed how energized and fueled I was from what God was doing in the ministry and my involvement in it, and she asked, had I ever considered full-time youth ministry? Well, this, she went on to explain from her perspective that uh, I loved working with youth, I only did engineering. Well, her question got me thinking, especially about God's call. Was I called? And for me, at this point in my life, we discern through much prayer and from counseling with godly people that we knew and youth pastor that I was working with, that God was indeed calling me into youth ministry. Since then, I've thought a lot about God's call. Who does he call? How does he call people? What does he call them to? And how do we discern his call? There's an idea, a myth really, that God's call is for people he wants in full-time ministry, as a pastor, as a missionary. Sure, God does call some people into being full-time ministry missionaries or pastors or things like that. I'm one of those. But he also calls people to be doctors, and he calls people to be lawyers, he calls people to be builders, he calls people to be janitors, and to be God's, work, God's vessel wherever you are. Psalm 24.1 tells us that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God cares about everything he created, which means he cares about you and he cares about your part in what he is doing. And he has a plan and a purpose for each one of us. I want to help us understand that God has called and is calling each and every one of us. So we're beginning a series called Divine Assignments, Exploring God's Call. Every one of us has a divine assignment. We've all been called by God. We're all being called by God. What does this call look like? How do we see it? How do we understand it? How do we follow it? These are some of the questions we want to explore in this series. Throughout the Bible, the story of God's working in, with, and through people We meet many different people who have been called by God for a specific assignment. We're going to dive into some of these people's lives over the course of this next several weeks to better understand the questions we have about God's call with the hope that we can better discern how God is calling us. Today, we meet a man named Noah. Many of you know this name. Noah shows up at a point in human history that is so dark and so desperate that there's virtually no hope left for humanity. In fact, things are so bad that God even says, I regret making humans, and that he's going to wipe humans off the face of the earth. So I'm going to read that passage in Genesis 6, 5 to 8. And if you have your Bibles, it'd be good to have them open to Genesis 5, 6 to 8. Or sorry, Genesis 6, 5 to 8. I almost started reading the wrong thing. 
The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe them from the face of the earth, the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I've heard people over and over again say how bad things are today, and they're only getting worse. Well, this passage shows that there really is nothing new under the sun. Ever since Adam and Eve chose to take that fruit and disobey God by taking the fruit that God said not to eat from, the curse of their disobedience has been on the humans. We've We've been prone to evil. At this time, when Noah was on the earth, this time in human history, only six stories in to the story of the Bible, there could hardly have been a more bleak description of how bad things had gotten. How great the wickedness of the human race, it says. Every inclination of the human heart was only evil all the time. Things were so bad that God says he regretted making human beings and his heart was deeply troubled or even in pain. Now, there's a lot of word plays that are going on in these verses. And I can't go through into depth into all of these word plays, but these word plays help us understand why God would say that he regretted making humans. As if he wished he hadn't. That's not what these verses are communicating. They're not saying that God did something now that he wished he hadn't done. These verses are communicating the emotional toll and the, the, uh, that the sinfulness of humans have on God. God, he loves us deeply and he's filled with pain by the destruction we've brought upon ourselves. He's grieving that the humans he made would choose to use their thoughts and imaginations toward evil when he made his, our thoughts and imaginations to be towards goodness, beauty, and truth. This teaches us a lot about the personality of God. He's not aloof somewhere doing his own thing, letting us fend for ourselves. He's living and personal and deeply invested in the world that he's created. He's even intimately engaged in our lives to the point where he's deeply pained. The pain described is of one losing a loved one. That's how deep the pain is. And we don't don't really know how God experiences emotions. It's, it's, It's different than us humans, but this is how he's communicating his pain to us. These verses also show that God does not take sin, evil, and wickedness lightly. Not only does he see it, he grieves over it, he also deals with it definitively. He doesn't let it go, he doesn't ignore it, he judges it. The people were so far gone in their depravity that the only judgment that's sufficient is to wipe them from the face of the earth. However, even in this extreme and warranted judgment, God also provides salvation. Again and again, God provides salvation throughout the story of the Bible. This is his character. God deals with sin through both judgment 
and salvation. In verse 8, we learn that Noah has found favor with God. It doesn't say that he has earned favor, but that he has found favor. All hope maybe isn't lost. The wickedness of the human race is rampant, it's full spread, yet God has not forgotten his promise to Adam and Eve that he would destroy the one, the serpent, who tempted them into sin. God, in his grace, grace's unmerited favor, unearned favor, offered Noah a relationship, even though he didn't deserve it. God chose to find favor with Noah. So, let's read what comes next in, in Genesis 9. Genesis 6, verse 9. So he said, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord, in verse 8. And then in verse 9, it goes on, This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. In verses 11 and 12 in this passage, we see again the repeated description of how bad things are. Three times the word corrupt is used. The earth was corrupt and full of violence. The earth had become corrupt because all the people had corrupted their ways. Now let me show you something that's really interesting about this word that will help us understand a little bit more what's going on with the judgment that God is bringing upon the earth. In the Hebrew language that this was written, the word translated as corrupt in verses 11 and 12 is actually the same word that's translated as destroy in verse 13. God will destroy. That's the same word that's used for corrupt in verses 11 and 12. Later, in verse 17, the same word is used again when it says God will destroy. So in verses 13 and 17, it's God who is destroying, but in verses 11 and 12, it's the humans who have already destroyed the earth. It seems that God is just finishing the course that the humans have set themselves upon. A one-way course, the humans have created their own destruction. And it's even more sorrowful than all this because it's not the, only the humans that are affected. Animals and plant life are destroyed as well. Human wickedness affects more than just humans, which shows how seriously God takes the responsibility he's given to humans. He told Adam and Eve to rule the earth, and he wanted them to rule it with goodness and beauty, but he gave them responsibility. And so when they chose to disobey, they brought about judgment not only for themselves, but for those, the pe- things that he gave them responsibility over. And so it wasn't just themselves they were destroying. They were destroying the things that he gave them responsibility over. That's how significant humans are in the plan of God. But just like we said before, God is a God of salvation and redemption. He chooses to find favor with Noah. Verse 9 tells us that Noah is a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time. He walked faithfully with God. This doesn't mean he didn't sin. We see his sinfulness later in chapter 9. 
But he has responded to God. And God at some point offered relationship and he responded. And so he's in relationship with God, a merciful and compassionate God. The word righteous is all about right relationship. He's in a right relationship with God because he's responded to God and he walked faithfully with God. Uh, Old Testament scholar Kenneth A. Matthews explains in his commentary on Genesis that Noah stands out from his contemporaries as a man of right conduct who enjoys a right relationship with God during a day of unrestrained evil. So despite all the wickedness that goes on around, Noah believed God. Noah was offered a relationship with God. He responded. Noah chose to walk with God, even though everything around him was different. He chose to walk with God. Thousands of years later, the author of the book of Hebrews in our New Testament, inspired by the Holy Spirit, wrote in chapter 11, verse 7, By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Noah and his family, they were saved from the destruction of the flood, not because he was perfect, not because he tried hard enough, not because he was something special, but because he chose to believe God. He chose to respond to God and believe God. He responded to God's grace in faith. Earlier in Hebrews 1, verse 11, or Hebrew, earlier in Hebrews 11, verse 1, I'm a little dyslexic this morning, it seems. In Hebrews 11, 1, we read that faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Noah demonstrates his faith in a clear and personal way. God tells him he's going to destroy the earth. He's going to bring floodwaters upon the earth, something Noah had never experienced or even imagined before. And then God tells him to go and make an ark, a special vessel. The word is related to an Egyptian word that means a box or a chest or a coffin that will allow his family and the animals to ride out the storm. Nothing said about a rudder or a hull. The description is really like a large coffin, a rectangular box with a flat bottom and square sides that would sit on top of the water, totally at the mercy of the floodwaters. Yet Noah trusts that God will be the rudder, that God will guide and direct the path. Imagine what Noah must be thinking. Chapter 7, verse 6 says that Noah was 100 years, 600 years old when the floodwaters came. We don't know how old he was when God came to him and told him to build the ark. But we can kind of discern that he was probably at least 500 years old based on Genesis 5.32 that talks about the age of his kids. So he, 500 years of experience tells him that floodwaters don't cover the earth tells him that this is something way beyond anything he could imagine. And God told him to go find cypress wood, chop it down, prepare it, and make it into a coffin-shaped vessel on dry land. What was Noah thinking? What was he imagining? What would other people think? What, what, would I, am I going to survive the ridicule, the mocking? Are people going to attack me? For doing this stuff? I mean, it says that violence was the, the going thing. I wonder if it took him so long because he had to keep rebuilding. We don't know what he thought. We don't know what happened. But what we do know is that no matter how little sense it made to him, 
No matter how illogical, beyond his experience, how peculiar or mysterious it was to him, Noah trusted God, and he obeyed. Check out the last verse in Genesis 6. Verse 22 says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Noah was special, not because he was superhuman or he tried really hard to earn God's favor, not because he did everything right and was perfect, but because he was in a relationship with God. God called, he responded, God offered a relationship to him, he chose to say yes and to walk with God even though the sinfulness was all around him. He chose to walk with God and in that relationship, God told him what he wanted him to do and Noah responded even though it didn't make sense, even though it would likely cause him ridicule and mocking or distress from the people around him, he obeyed. In his obedience, Noah demonstrated faith, that he believed God and he trusted God with everything. And that's what faith is. It's complete trust in the Almighty God. And the beauty of this story is that God is a God who deeply cares about the salvation of the people he created. He didn't just wipe out all of humanity, even though it was deserved. In fact, it was, he had every right to do that. But he chose to save Noah. He chose to be in a relationship with Noah and save his family because of his faith. In his obedience, Noah became a new Adam. Adam was the first human that was created. After day two, God separated the waters below from the waters above, and on day three, separated the waters from the dry land. The flood is a divine reversal of these acts of creation. But then it's a renewal of his created order as the floodwaters recede. And in this renewal, Noah is the new Adam. He's the survivor through which all humanity is born. On, after God created Adam and Eve, he told them to rule the earth. Now he tells Noah to rule the earth to increase and multiply. Thousands of years later, there's another man in the Bible that God calls the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul tells us that the last Adam was of the dust of the earth, while the, sec while the uh, first Adam, sorry, he says that the first Adam was of the dust of the earth, while the last Adam was of heaven. And death came through the first Adam, but life, resurrection from the dead, comes from the last Adam. The last Adam is Jesus, God the Son, who came not just to save one man's family, but to save anybody who would respond to his call. Noah was saved from judgment to become a new Adam, but Jesus was the last Adam that took all of judgment upon himself, all of the judgment, the humanity that we all deserve, he took upon himself. See, God judges sin. He definitely judges sin. He doesn't take it lightly. It will be judged, but he also provides salvation. The whole story of the Bible culminates in this last Adam and Jesus, God the Son, loving humanity so much, even in our sinfulness, that he became human, that he took the judgment, the punishment, everything that we deserve upon himself so that we could be saved from the destruction that we brought upon ourselves. And just like God called Noah, God calls us. In three ways. First, he offers salvation and relationship to anyone who would receive it. Just like God offered a relationship to Noah at some point, he offers us a relationship. Romans 1.16 says the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
John 3.16 tells us that God loves the world and wants people to accept his love and his salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So every one of us has been called and we can accept the call to accept his forgiveness and give our lives to him and receive true life. When we do receive that first call to come into a relationship with Jesus, he gives us a second call. This is the call to all believers who trust in Jesus. Listen to 2 Timothy 1.9. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. Now, I know this calling sounds beyond us. There's no way we could do it. But even in this verse, there's a hint of what the Bible says in so many places. It's not up to us to make ourselves holy. It's God's work in us that makes us holy, and he doesn't do it immediately. It's a process that will continue until the end of this life. When we've accepted the call to be saved from our sin, we're given the Holy Spirit to work in our lives to help us with this next call to walk in step with the Spirit, responding to his work in us, making us holy. And we talked about walking in step with the Spirit in the fall in our Taste of the Kingdom series. You can go back and review that for more on how to walk in the Spirit. But just like Noah's calling didn't make a whole lot of sense to him. And the people around him didn't understand. Our call to trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus and to walk step in step with the Holy Spirit may be puzzling, may not make a whole lot of sense. But just like Noah responded in faith, that's our call too. Trust and obey. There's a third way God calls believers in Jesus, and that is that he's given each one of us an individual call. Ephesians 4 begins in verse 1 by saying, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And then in verse 7, it says, to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. God has uniquely called each one of us to a part in his unifying work of all of us. Each one of us has a call. We'll be exploring what this looks like in the coming weeks, but I want to point out, what I want to bring home this morning is that you are called. God wants you, wherever you are. Whoever you are, God wants to be in relationship with you. He wants to work in in your heart, and he has a purpose and a plan for you. Where you are, who you are, with the gifts and abilities he's given you. Your abilities, your talents, your relationships, your career, all these play a part in your individual call to be part of what God is doing. And just like Noah, it may sound unclear, it may be difficult to comprehend, but God knows the whole picture. You don't have to know the whole picture. You don't have to know exactly how it's all going to play out. But you need to trust that he does. And you need to respond with whatever he's telling you to do next, even when you don't understand. Let's pray. God, this is amazing news that you have called each one of us that you, God, have called me to be part of your plan, that you have called each of us here to be part of your plan, no matter what we've done, where we've been, where we are, we are called now, and we can respond now. And God, you will make us holy. 
We don't have to do it. But that's your call to trust you in making us holy and you will give us a divine assignment. Each one of us has a role to play. We are significant in your plan. God, please just help us to trust you. Please help us to be ready to respond to you. Help us to hear what you're saying to us, your Holy Spirit whispering in our ear, whatever that looks like. Help us to respond and obey. Thank you for being that kind of a God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.